Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. It's an honor to be with you guys tonight. If you don't know me, if I haven't met you, my name's Bria. I'm the director of operations here at Saints Hill. And I also get the privilege to teach sometimes. And I'm super excited as we enter in tonight to get into what I think the Lord has for tonight. But first, um, during worship, we were singing the song. I'm trying to remember the words of it now. It's the I Will Never Forget song. Makes sense. The I Will Never Forget the moment I met you. When that phrase happened during worship, I was just reminded by the Lord of two just really distinct memories for me. The first one was um, like six-ish years old. I remember I used to walk. We lived on a farm, and I would like walk out in the field, and I didn't know who Jesus was or like anything about him, but I just remember like going out there and feeling like I should like sing songs like to God. I was like, I don't really know what this is, but I'd like go out there and walk around and worship. Didn't know what I was doing, but I was worshiping. And he brought that memory back to me, and then he also brought back a memory of me in middle school. Um, And this is when I would like, if you were to say like, what's the day that you like came to know Jesus, if I had to like pinpoint a time, it was this time. I remember they were singing that song, um, Holy Fire, Burn Away, Um, My Desire for Anything That's Not of You But Is of Me. And I don't know what it was about those words, but the Holy Spirit, when his presence is there, the Holy Spirit can use whatever he wants to unveil whatever he wants in you. And in that moment, I remember singing those words and just like walking to the front and I found one of my youth leaders and I was like, I just want to know him. I started spilling out just everything, like every sin that I'd ever done, everything that I had known that wasn't of him. And I was like, I just want him. I just want him. I want to know him. I want to be like him. And I can tell you all the, like, I wasn't ashamed to tell her anything. It was the weirdest thing. Like, middle school, I was embarrassed of everything. I wanted everybody to like me. I cared the most about what people thought. But in that moment, all that I wanted was to get to know, I wanted to know him. And I was like, so let me show you all these things that he's bringing up in my life that I want to, like, can I lay them before you? And she was good enough to be like, okay, let me point you towards him. Like, you don't have to tell me all these things, but this is like, this confession is good. This bringing, like, when we get in God's presence and he shows us who he is, he brings up anything that's not of him and we just want to give it away. That's like how good that he is. That when we get around him and we can really say, God, all that I want is you, we want to give away anything less, anything that's not of him. And I think that like remembering the moment we met Jesus and if there's anyone in here that you haven't, it's the, it's the best day of your life. I hope that tonight is that night. But as we remember those moments that we first met him, I think what he's doing tonight, not just in me, but in all of us, is he wants to bring us back to that first love, bring us back to that place of that that full surrender. There's something, if you guys have been here for very long, um, you're hearing testimony after testimony after testimony of things that God is doing. We are people that are sitting in the midst of like a really holy moment. God is doing amazing things amongst these people. But what it looks like to steward that is to come and to say, oh no, we're a fully surrendered people. Continuing to God, put our eyes back on you to go wherever you're going. If we get caught up in a moment or we get caught up in a gift or we get caught up in a story and we miss him, we've missed everything. So for us to come and to steward what he's doing tonight, the what he's been impressing on my heart this week as we come into Sunday is just that we would be a pure people. That we would be a people who actually knows what purity means. And I know that that 
that word can be super loaded, and don't worry, we're going to kind of unpack it and walk through it. But what God calls us to is to be a pure people, that a people with a pure heart are people who will see God. And that's where we're going to go tonight. Our tech, one of our main texts for tonight, there's going to be two, but the first one is in John 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. John 4, we're going to start in verse 14. So in this story, um, in John, it's Jesus is, he's traveling with the disciples. The disciples leave to get food and Jesus stays. He's tired and he sits at a well where he meets a woman. It's a Samaritan woman. Um, they're near Samaria. Samaritan woman would be someone who, if you were to know, if no Jewish culture, be someone who followed the Torah, who followed the cleanliness and laws of Israel, you wouldn't even be seen talking to her. But Jesus sits with her. And he's telling her of living water. He's telling her um, of a story. He's inviting her into something. And we're going to enter into that story in verse 14. John 4, verse 14. And he says, But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way to him. This um, passage comes up, and as we talk about the pure heart. This is one that I actually always think of. It's one of those, um, this, we're, I think we're in a moment um, as a church before we move on here of just where you guys know if you've been here the last three weeks, we've looked at the heart. Jake walked with us into how to guard your heart. We walked with Jim in the forgiving heart and Donnie taught us about continually growing and having that heart. Um, and so this week it's, uh, the plan actually is to start in our worship series, but God's not done with the heart yet. And I think that the point of that is, is we're, we're going to move into a worship series next week, and I'm so excited. Those two things are, you can't separate them. The heart and worship, they can't be separated. What it looks like to be a true worshiper is connected with what your heart looks like. And this story in John is showing us that, like, that bridge that the scriptures is always building between the pure heart and pure worship. You cannot separate the two. And this story holds a bunch of things, a bunch of amazing things that we could unpack that we're not going to have time to tonight. The responses of Jesus, the disciples, the woman, they could all be their own teaching time for a Sunday. But one of the things that I love about this story in John is that this is the very first person in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals himself to as Messiah. This Samaritan woman is the very first person that Jesus openly comes to and says, oh, the Messiah, that's me. The one you've been waiting for, that's me. 
And this was always fascinating to me because why not like one of your disciples that had been walking with you? Why not one of the religious leaders that could have gone and told people, um, kind of gotten their, their attention, been someone who like, oh, you do know the Torah, so you would know who the Messiah is. Or just someone who had some social clout. He picks one of the least of the least. He picks a woman and he reveals himself. He lets her see who he is. And we're gonna, come, we're gonna come back to this story in fullness, but what this story brings up to me is another verse, and it's our second key text for tonight from Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This woman in John 4, purity is not a descriptor that anyone would have chosen for her. It's not even one that I would choose as I read into them, but Jesus shows himself to her. He lets her see him. So there must be something to this woman. There must be something about her that Jesus decides, I'm gonna let you see God. I'm gonna reveal myself to you. But before we go there, I think we do need to have a robust definition of purity grasped together. Purity, what comes to your mind when you hear that word? For me, I know I think back to high school. I would go to the conferences and I would sit at the, called the silver ring thing is what they called ours. And you go and you watch the, the skits about uh, trampled flowers or a half-eaten pizza and you're like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. And you go at the end and you sign up and you get your ring. I remember after mine, I like ran home to my dad. I was like, dad, can you buy me a purity ring? And he's like, what in the world are you talking about? I was like, isn't that every father's dream? Come on. But it was one of those things where, to to me, all growing up, I was like, okay, so purity is just what you don't do sexually. Purity is just just this, that I would take this solemn vow, just just don't do it. And I think a lot of people might have similar experiences and some purity up to just sexuality. And there's no doubt that the scriptures speak often that God cares about our body. He cares about the whole person. He has designed your body for sex in a certain way, for marriage between a man and a woman. That is true. That is designed and that is pure. But that definition is only part of the story. And if we stop there, if that's all that we hold, then we've missed what God is giving us when we talk about purity. And maybe some people think of actually like ritual cleansing, right? You go back to the Old Testament. You're like, okay, purity is what made people clean. It was the ritual they did to cleanse them. But still there's more. To have a robust biblical definition of purity, and if that's something that you already hold, then this is gonna be a bit of a refresher for you. Um, but a lot of this for me, I, it's like has struck my heart this week of what God is doing in making this pure people. And first, we have to know what that means. And I think a lot of times with vocabulary, when we think about the Bible and we think about words like purity and what culture has done with them, sometimes we get rid of them, right? We look at words that the Bible uses and we're like, oh, purity, that's kind of an outdated word. Or you look at words like holiness or justice or different things that we've seen the world define in all these different ways. And sometimes you've seen the church use them in a really bad way. So you're like, oh, I just don't want it anymore. But as the people of God, we have to be willing to engage with God's vocabulary to understand his intention for people because the words in the scriptures, they were intentional. And even though our language isn't the same, that's why we come to the scriptures and we say, okay, God, what do you mean when you say this? What do you have for me when you say this? So that even if a word, if we look at something like purity and we're like, well, it's been soiled by culture or the church has soiled it, we don't throw it out. We don't throw out what it means for our lives. We don't throw out the fact that we are called to be a people of purity. We throw out misunderstandings and we dig deeper for his intention. That when God says things like that, anything he says, we would look to know his definition. That's what we're going to do tonight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So what does it mean to be pure? Purity in the scriptures is always tied to holiness. Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, defines holiness like this. 
The holiness of God is a term used in the Bible to describe both his goodness and his power. It is completely unique and utterly all-powerful, radiating out from God like an energy. In fact, God's holiness is so overwhelming that it can actually be dangerous to approach. It is God's holiness that exposes impurity because what is impure cannot stand in his holy presence. In the Old Testament, you'll see the early purity laws of Leviticus. It's because people needed to be clean to enter the temple, to enter into the presence of God. Not because God was trying to shame them, but because that is who he is. He is purity, he is holiness, and to be a people who can approach him requires that we would be in the same place. Think of stories like Moses in the burning bush, right? When, he approaches, when Moses approaches the bush, it's this bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And he hears the bush say, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. Moses trembles, but the bush invites him into a new destiny. It's the spirit of God was alive. It was burning, but it was not consuming and it was inviting Moses into holiness. Or there's the story in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah has this vision of the Lord and he encounters his holiness and he falls and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, don't look at me. But what God does is he takes a coal, he touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. The presence of God is pure, it's holy, it exposes impurity in all its forms, and not for the sake of shame, but for the sake of invitation. It's invitation to be set apart as God himself is, to draw near to him. Moses was invited into a new life and mission with Yahweh. Isaiah was cleansed and purified. God's holiness invades their space, exposes their impurity, and then does a purifying work that they may stand with him in his presence. We, uh, my husband and I bought a house here in Newburgh in February. And in February, when you look at the ground, everything's pretty dead. So when we looked at our house, we walked around and we were like, this is a pretty blank slate. Yard looks pretty good. Nothing's growing. It was like pretty, like ugly, but blank. We're like, we'll have some stuff to work with in the summer. Same with the front yard. It was fine. But then the sun came out. Spring hit, right? And we walk into our backyard and we're like, oh, it's actually all weeds and blackberry bushes and not really any grass. And there's actually a lot of stuff that we need to deal with, that we need to root out. If we're ever going to have a yard like what we'd want to have. And when you walk out and you see a yard like that, right, that's chaos, it's full of, full of crazy things, you have a couple options. I was like, I do have an option that I could just close my doors, shut the blinds, not look out there until next winter when it's all gone again. Don't have to do anything. But option two is that you would get out there, you would pull out the things that don't belong so that what should live there can live there. Exposure is always going to offer a choice. And that's what the holiness of God does. It exposes impurity in our lives and hearts and it offers us a choice. It offers you the choice to align with him for the design for your life, to give up sin in our lives so that we can be near him, to let him uproot impurity and doing the hard work that often comes with that, or we can avoid exposure, exposure from him. We can avoid him. We can avoid him truly seeing us, avoid what he wants to do. One option leads to intimacy and one does not. One option honors the holiness of God and one does not. And that's why we have, to talk, we have to talk about sin as a church. We're, if anybody's going to talk about it, we're the people that need to talk about it. We have a call. We're supposed to see a weed, call it a weed, and pull it up. If we aren't strong enough to, it's we call our friends and we say, hey, I have these weeds and I need to pull them up, but I need your help. I need you to come around me and I need you to with me see the garden vision that God has for my life and help me. That we can be exposed by God, but we can do it together. This exposure is always inviting us deeper. This exposure is always inviting us closer to him. Yeah. 
Deconstruction is kind of this, uh, it's a hot word in the church right now. You guys might have heard it. The basic idea is that people would take doubt or disillusionment with the scriptures or with God himself or with the church and come to a conclusion that there really is no black and white. There really is no right or wrong. There really is no the way when it comes to following Jesus. The understanding of sin, life in the kingdom, what it means to be human by God's design, it's all just up to interpretation. And often disillusionment with the church or other traditions, it it can lead to this. And sometimes actually like looking at the church, looking at things that she's done and saying, ooh, that's wrong. That's a great thing. But there is a time where this kind of deconstruction leads to just a disillusionment, a tearing apart of what God has said about who he is and about what life is supposed to look like. In that, the church discards the way of Jesus, which is what we were made for. Deconstruction can kind of lead to that throwing out the baby with the bathwater. As people recognize and rethink these harmful pieces of church history, they throw out everything, including actually understanding the scriptures. There's a way to approach the scriptures as a lover where we seek to understand, we seek to know what he really says. And there's a way to approach God as a cynic and say, no, I'm just here to question you. And he's like, but I'm here to be in relationship with you. That your questions, your struggles could be in relationship with me and we'd see fruit instead of you getting further and further from me. And I would agree that there are places in the scriptures where there is, there's room for gray. And we should leave room there too. But I'm not gonna say that there's not places where Jesus makes it clear who he is. He makes it clear what the kingdom is about. He makes it clear what life in the kingdom should look like, what it means to be human, about what sin is. And those things, I would say, yes, they're black and white. There are places that the scripture's given us that we can say, yes, that is true. God is holy, yes. Jesus is the way to the Father, yes. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, yes. That there are choices we make, there's ways that we can live our lives that are out of alignment with the design and the desires of God. They break his heart. They work to disrupt covenant, and those are sin, and they're not to be taken lightly. And what deconstruction has done to sin, even within the church, is that they would look at that garden of weeds and say, actually, weeds can be kind of beautiful if you see them right. Weeds can actually be kind of healthy if you just know how to live with them. It can say, actually, no, God actually, God loves me so much, he thinks that these weeds are beautiful. He knows I'm happy in the weeds. But no, God loves you so much that he would purify you as he is pure. He would expose the weeds that they could be pulled up for what they are, a disturbance to the garden that he is cultivating. He loves you so much that he invites you to draw near to a holy God. And God loves you so much that he died so that sin could never own you again. That you could be alive to him, that you could know real joy. And for the follower of Jesus, that means there isn't a, oh, live your own truth. There's only submitting to his truth dead to sin, alive in Christ, that you can know true joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when we look at that, that word pure, I just wanna break it down a little bit. The, when you look at that word in that verse, the Greek word is katharos, it can mean clean, pure, free, ritually pure. And it's used many times in the pages that follow that Matthew 5 reference. And from these uses, I think we can get three main things about purity that'll give us a fuller definition. The first thing I want us to enter in as we talk about purity is that purity is a person. (laughs) When we talk about purity, you'll hear us say it all the time here that peace is a person. What we're saying is that the things of God that make him up, those are not, they don't exist apart from him. Peace is a person. It's found in Jesus. It's the same with purity, holiness, cleansing, purity. It's all found only in him. It's relational. It's communion with him. It can't live outside of him. We cannot chase 
chase purity of its own sake, that means nothing. But when we're with him, he gives away who he is freely. So we get to see that purity is a person. When we talk about it, it's, it's him. Because we're saying what we want. We're not saying, oh, we want to be pure just to be pure. We're saying we want to be as he is. We want to get close to him. We want to taste him. We want to see Jesus. And if this is a part of who he is, let it be a part of who I am. Who he is changes who we are. So we care about purity as far as of Jesus because it's part of him. To separate purity from relationship is to make it just a state that people are supposed to chase. And you miss the point completely. We always start with him and we go wherever he takes us. The second thing about purity that we can see in the scriptures is that purity, purity is given to you and received by you. An element of purity is that cleansing work. Think of Isaiah and the coal. It's God reaching to meet impurity with his purity. And what's so cool is that the character of God, purity always trumps impurity. Light always trumps darkness. The character of God, who he is, will always trump the works of the devil every single time. In John 15, 3, Jesus uses that same word to say, already you are clean, Katharos, because of the word I've spoken to you. This verse is in that vine allegory context. And right before the verse, Jesus is talking to his disciples of the pruning work. And Jesus is saying that his word is the means of pruning. And because his word peers and pu- prunes and purifies, he can speak to the disciples as if they are clean, even though the pruning work is not complete. God can speak purity into existence where it wasn't before. And it's he who impacts everything around him for both the heart and the exterior. Like think about the lepers. Jesus cleansed them with the touch of the woman with the infirmity. She touched him and she was cleansed. That's who Jesus is. Impure things die away in his presence. They can't survive in front of him. That's why when we get in a place like this, we get in a place of worship and we're exposed to him. We're like, Jesus, take everything. Like that holy fire song, God, take everything. Burn anything away that's not of you. And that's our deep, that's our desire. It's what we want. It's not something we have to struggle to say when you're in his presence. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses or purifies us from all unrighteousness. Just as the purity rituals of Leviticus cleansed one to be able to enter the presence of God, the sacrifice of Jesus was a cleansing so complete it could be for all people for all time that those who are washed by his blood are able to stand in his presence, pure and unashamed. Jesus gives his purity to his people. Jesus' atonement gives us the ability to stand unashamed in the holy presence. You can stand in the holy of holies. His presence can live inside of you because he said, I've made you holy as I am holy. Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Faith in the finished work of Jesus is to be made new, to be purified. It's not a state that we try to achieve. It's not something we can reach dependent solely on our actions. It is a state that is graciously given by the cleansing blood of Jesus. Purity is a lot less about what we should stay away from and a lot more about who we're drawing near to. And we can't get those two out of order. Like Hebrews says, we can draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance because he's cleansed us, washed us. We can draw near to holiness. And as those who follow Jesus and we've received that gift, we've said yes to him, we can know that we are pure, that we are righteous, and we can be bold when we come into his presence. And every time that we come into his presence as a fall, what we're doing is we're exposing ourselves. We're saying, okay, God, I want to be exposed. Like, expose my sin. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me, oh God, and know my thoughts. We can be bold enough to say that because we know, okay, God, you've got us. You have cleansed us. Anything that I could bring before you is nothing that you can't burn away is nothing that your presence can't burn away. 
And sin can only hold power in a pure person when it's hidden, when it erodes you from the inside out. So come boldly before him into his presence and let him expose you. We get to eradicate sin in partnership with him because he's made us holy like he is holy. Purity is given to you to be received by you that we would be changed from the inside out. And third, and this is a way that um, we don't often think about purity, but purity is an action. Oftentimes when we think about it, we think of it as a state, right? A cleanliness. And again, that is part of the true definition. But a large part about purity that we sometimes miss is that it is an action. A pure heart is a heart that has surrendered to God. No longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. Remember, there's always a decision when you stand in the presence of holiness. To surrender to a holy God who makes his people holy to turn from an old life to taking up your cross and following him, that when Jesus says, follow me, you leave everything else behind, you say yes. A pure heart lays bare in front of the Father again and again, says yes again and again. Purity is surrender. There's no performance there. There's no pretense there. There's no selfish motive there. It's just you and your God, and it's your heart's response to him. And God doesn't stop there in partnership with you. He doesn't stop at cleansing. He doesn't stop at changing your state so you can come and be in his holy presence. He doesn't stop at exposing and crushing your sin. He doesn't stop at exposing lies of the enemy. What he does is he says, you are purified to purify. Just as when we get in his presence and his holiness exposes sin, exposes lies, so we are in the world, holy as he is holy, exposing lies of the enemy to go out to expose the works of the devil and say, no, this is not what the world should be like, to expose injustice and cruelty for what they are. And just as when God enters a room and his holiness causes us to see ourselves clearly, just as he's given himself to cleanse us, purity causes us to give of ourselves. It's a whole person thing. It is sexual purity as your body is a living sacrifice to God. It is being surrendered to his way. It is purity of your mind as he transforms your thinking to see the impossible as possible and his redemption plan for the world becomes your story. It is purity of the heart that you would worship him in spirit and in truth. And it is purity that goes beyond just you and him. It must not only be received, not only how we identify, not only how we're transformed, but it must go beyond us. We see that same word again in James 27 when Paul says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what is pure religion? To look outside of yourself, to put the needs of others before yourselves, to look at the orphan and the widow, the lowliest in society, and to care for them. That you would be out there changing the world with the love of Christ, and that you wouldn't be polluted by the world in the process. Jesus speaks this same word again, um, in Luke eleven thirty nine through 41, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also. But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. What does purity look like? Losing the obsession with outside appearances and getting an obsession for caring for those who have nothing, for caring for the person who is outside of you. God's idea of purity is that you would be clean, that you might be near to him. In getting near to him, you might be like him, and sin would have no hold on you as you align with his way of life, submitted to his authority. And being like him, you would be free of self-perseverance and performance and able to love the world with abandon. That is what life looks like for the pure in heart. And it is worship for the pure in heart that God is after Now, like I promised, I want to look back at that story of the Samaritan woman. And now that we have a little bit more of a robust definition of what purity is, why did she see God? 
Why did he reveal himself to her? Why did he tell her he was Messiah before anybody else? I look at that woman and I see that her sin was laid bare before him. His offer to her was living water. And she recognized him as a prophet and the first thing she asked about was worship. Why did she ask about it? As a Samaritan woman, she wouldn't have been allowed to worship in a true sense like the Jews would have. It wouldn't have been possible. She couldn't go into the temple where it was acquired. She couldn't go to Jerusalem and enter into the temple and worship God. She was seen as dirty, not of the people of God. But when she talks about worship, I think she's actually see, she sees who Jesus is. I think she already is kind of like, I get who you are. And she's saying, can this be for me? Can you, Jesus, be for me? With, how, like, I, with who I am, could you be for me? And Jesus' response to her is that a time is coming and has now come <laughs> that it's happened where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit of and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus is saying that the time is now, that that invitation is for her. He tells her who he is. She's the first one who gets to know. He honors her extravagantly. She responded by dropping everything in order to go introduce him to the city that she was from. Now, this is me reading into it a little because this isn't directly in the text, but I believe that she was able to see God be the one who just revealed himself because he saw her pure heart and spoke it over her before she even said yes to it. Like the disciples who were called clean before the pruning work was complete, he was telling her who she was before she even believed him. He revealed himself in promise of what she would become. He teaches her about worship, about being a worshiper, and he's inviting her to be one. She wouldn't need the temple in Jerusalem to worship. She would just need a pure heart in which he could dwell. It's because of the cleansing work of Jesus that the spirit of God can take up his home in us. A new temple, not in Jerusalem, cleansed in precious blood for those who live under Jesus Christ, the living, breathing home of the spirit of God. The true worshipers of God are led by him, surrendered by him, and in love with him who worship in spirit and truth. These two words are super important in this verse. And I think even as you read it, you can always just feel wife on those two. But the word truth in that verse can also be translated reality. The Father is seeking worshipers that worship in reality. The real life story of the kingdom of God. The reality that death has been defeated. The reality that the cross has the final word. That sin and Satan have already lost and they're destroying things in their wake as they make their retreat. The reality that anything is possible that God is better than we ever could have believed, that we are made righteous, holy, pure sons and daughters, that the time has now come. The word pure that we've looked at so many times, if you remember, it can also mean free. And that's my favorite translation of the word, I think, that to approach God's holiness, for him to make us pure, is actually for him to set us free. Free to be near him, to be like him. And freedom cannot exist outside of reality. And reality cannot be experienced without freedom. The Spirit is calling worshipers of God to freedom. Freedom from sin, from death, from performance, from self-preservation. He's breaking chains. He's inviting people to communion. A way more beautiful story than just a purity culture or a silver ring conference could tell. That true reformation sets people free. The Spirit is calling these worshipers made free to live in reality, to live in truth. It's these worshipers who are not only, we're not only called to sing together in the corporate, but the, whose worship is evangelism. Think of the Samaritan woman who dropped everything, went to town shouting, could this be the Messiah? She brought people back to his feet. May our lives worship that loud. Of the God who knows our every detail, she ran and she said, he knows me. 
He knows us, he sees us. May we be a people who speak of that, that tell the world like this, this is him. This is who you've been waiting for. There's a author I admire um, in the world of business and he wrote this article for the New York Times. It released it a little bit ago. And it was called, it was for kind of the season, the COVID season for people. And it's called, there's a name for that blah feeling. It's called languishing. He describes it as the dominant state for people this year, that it's this space of, it's healthier than burnout and depression, but it's joyless, it's aimless. Languishing is being the term used to show that state. And I don't have any issue with terms help us pinpoint where we're at emotionally. I think it's actually helpful. And I understand that he's not writing to Jesus' people, but he gives a solution to this state that I think it should strike us as people of Jesus. His solution was this. A concept called flow may be the antidote for languishing. Flow is that elusive state of absorption in a meaningful challenge or a momentary bond where your sense of time, place, and self melts away. An early morning word game catapults me into flow. A late night Netflix binge sometimes does the trick. It transports you into a story where you feel attached to characters and concerned with their welfare. The solution for joyless and aimless. A morning word game, a Netflix binge a momentary bond. That's the reality that much of the world is living in. Moments to escape, times of self-fulfillment, because it would seem that there's nothing else that's good enough to spark joy. There's nothing else that can remove us from the story. And this should strike us. It should urge us like that Samaritan woman to run. We had a revelation of the face of Jesus and we can say, he sees me, he knows me, come and see. Because he sees you and knows you too. This is in part why we must be worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth with pure hearts to walk with what the Holy Spirit's giving us because he's given us reality. Not a reality that we have to escape, but a reality that it gives a solution for what ails you, for all of life's things, it's Jesus. It's not about distracting yourself from life's biggest questions by watching Netflix and getting a different story or by playing a game so that you can distract from life. It's actually about, yes, ask the biggest questions. Ask why are we here? Ask what am I living for? Ask if there's purpose. Ask if your life means anything because the people of God are there with an answer saying, yes, his name is Jesus. This is the Messiah. It's the one you've been waiting for. In him you live and you move and you have your being and the time has come to worship him. The time has come to rise up as true worshipers of God. He knows everything about you. He offers you living water. He is the creator and giver of joy who would purify your soul, show you that when you surrender to him, you will have the life you're really made for. Your mission for the day doesn't have to be distraction. No matter how crazy of a year it's been, he is the same. He's calling you to partnership with the living God. That's your mission for the day, is to partner with the living God. Don't lose yourself in momentary distractions when he's inviting you to lose your life in him so that you may find it in him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, that he might give you living water and joy that will never run dry. This is what is real. (laughs) This is reality. And the enemy is an expert at distraction, but that is why our worship has to be something that's not hidden. It can't be something that we sacrifice at the altar of culture or that we wanna blend with the world to try and make God more palatable. That's not how we get to see the kingdom. Jesus never tried to make himself more palatable to culture. Your heart, your worship, it is only for him. That's what a pure heart does. It says, all of me is just for you, Jesus. Everything I have is just for you because you're, you're worthy, 
you're the holy one and I'll give myself only to you. I won't give myself to the world. His kingdom's for a set apart people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Freedom is the reality with Jesus. That's what's on offer. And the antidote for languishing is not the Netflix binge, but it's the spirit of God alive in you. It's the true worshipers who live to tell that story. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And you're so much easier